Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is... Thursday, July 13th, 2017, we have Charles Marshall with us tonight as co-host. Tonight we talk about settlements, not the ones with homeowners. This is about the $350 billion so far paid in settlements by Wall Street banks to regulators and investors, which is merely pennies compared to the trillions of dollars diverted from the American economy and into the pockets of the bankers. Today we see another $6 billion settlement from Royal Bank of Scotland that uh, on what was only a $30 billion claim. They were kind of a bit player. But for the first time, mainstream media is calling those certificates what they should be called, the certificates, you know, that they refer to, pass-through certificates and the so-called trust. Now mainstream media media is saying, quote, so-called residential mortgage-backed securities, which means there's a recognition, there's an awakening of of the media that the certificates were never mortgage-backed in the first place and therefore were the equivalent of boiler room penny stock so-called investments, sometimes invented out of thin air, which is what the certificates of trust were, and sometimes real from a dead company whose shares are still trading. But in all events, worthless. It also means that if the certificates were not mortgage-backed, then the lawyers who name the trusts that issued the certificates are lying to the court when they say that the trust owns the loan. Just as I've been saying for 10 years. Joining us as co-host is California attorney Charles Marshall. Good afternoon to those in the western time zones and good evening to those in the east. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order for the studio board to show that you're waiting with a question. The money trail, the paper trail, what's the difference? These bank settlements, which total over $350 billion so far, only account for a small portion of the settlements that were not announced. The problem is that nobody wants to admit that the trust never owned and never could own 
any loans. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and Charles Marshall is broadcasting from San Diego, California, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida and Northern Florida. And this, office, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, if our services have value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Charles Marshall, welcome again. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. It's always, it's always great to be on co-hosting and uh, being with you. I think... Investors are awakening to the fact that they were sold penny stocks, basically the equivalent of penny stocks from dead companies, and that their money went nowhere near the trusts that issued the certificates. That means the trusts were not funded and never acquired any assets. And that means that the investors do not qualify for pass-through status for tax treatment as a real estate mortgage investment conduit, a REMIC, and that the certificates do not qualify for ta- for exempt status from the SEC. Brent Tantillo told us a couple of weeks ago that the reason these lawsuits never got off the ground uh, into full flight to claw back all the money that was stolen, or most of it, is the fact that there's a revolving door between the banks and the regulators where the banks hire chief investigators or prosecutors before they get too far, thus leaving a successor to start all over again. Charles, why don't you take it from here? Why are these gigantic multi-billion dollar settlements important for homeowners who are fighting off the same banks who are settling with the government and with investors? Well, the reason they're important is they're the leading edge to bringing in investor lawsuits. And we've only seen a few of those. And uh, Brent is involved in, in some critical ones in that area. I think that's a really important area for exposing the fraud that is, as you know, as you mentioned, it's a big deal that even the media is calling these so-called securitizations so-called. The reason it's a big deal is because that's getting out the message, you know, in a, in a big way and in a more broad way that there's massive fraud behind the whole securitization uh uh, you know, arrangements such as they were. And the the way this is playing out in this particular RBS case is that 
there really is an exposure of the fact that these were never properly securitized in any meaningful way. And the settlement could well lead to investors going after RBS because of losing tax-favorable treatment. And borrowers could potentially use this too. Um, I, I would give the cautionary, uh, and, and I know I, I, I kind of consider that my role, both in my legal practice and kind of overall. Um, I tend to look at things through a cautionary lens because there's so many caveats and particularly our side that the side of the borrowers, you know, the side of the, all the individuals around the country who've been on the wrong end of, of the outrageous, you know, mortgage meltdown that's happened. Uh, You know, on the one hand, our side has to, has to look at every big settlement like this as an opportunity. On the other hand, our side, has to analyze these situations and and not take too much from them. I mean, it's, it's, it's rare that there's any one case or any one circumstance that's going to ch- completely change the legal landscape here. All of these settlements, though, are a big deal, and they are, they are helping move things in our direction. One of the issues that we have when you have these borrower lawsuits, you know, either as a defendant in a judicial state like Florida or a plaintiff in a non-judicial state like California or Nevada, one of the things that we deal with all the time is getting judges to take our matters seriously and get, you know, get them to get off the meme of, oh, your client just wants a free house. We still hear that, which is, frankly, shocking this late in the game, but it does still come up. So the RBS settlement is a way of showing that on a major systemic basis, RBS could not produce the goods in a major law. What, what amounts to, I mean, these, these legal actions, these, these lawsuits, and they are framed somewhat, at, you know, as a civil lawsuit, but it's a civil lawsuit plus. It's not a criminal action that these government authorities are bringing. And by the way, the U.S. Justice Department has brought a number of similar actions, and I'll get into that in a bit, against, uh, you know, all the major lenders and servicers, you know, who we have grown to uh, certainly not love over the years. Hate may too, be stro- too strong a word, but certainly – Lots of borrowers have lots of reasons to be massively upset with the major servicers. Um, but just to finish the point, the the RBS situation creates a leading edge. I think it does for borrowers to some extent. The cautionary being that you have to convince each individual judge in each individual courtroom that, yes, this applies to this case, that this settlement shows that particularly where the defendant is the same one who did the settlement, that this defendant's conduct in this courtroom related to the proceeding in front of this judge, that it it connects with the settlement. But like everything else, uh, attorneys are going to have to draw these connections. And, 
there are a number of uh, yeah, there are a number of points, for instance, that an attorney could do in these case these cases to get to um, to basically get discovery, uh, you know, in 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 the case of the borrower. In other words, get discovery whether you're either promulgating discovery or you're responding, but in this case, it's really going to be promulgated discovery. Uh, Neil, there are a number of discovery kind of um, questions, areas to address. I'm, I'm happy to go into those if you think that would be useful. I think it's essential that we get into the actual questions that need to be asked in order to give value to our listeners who, uh, by this point, uh, I'm tracking on my board, uh, are mostly regular listeners. I think what uh, most people want is, okay, we get it. The, uh, the trust didn't own the loan, never could have owned the loan, and the whole thing's a fraud. So when we're asking questions either in discovery or cross-examination, how do we bring that out? And, of course, in non-judicial states where the homeowner has to bring the lawsuit, the homeowner is taking on an almost impossible burden, which is to prove a negative. The bank doesn't have to allege or prove anything. Um, what you what you've got is what I refer to in my book, the Garfield Guide, that'll be released soon, as asymmetry of knowledge. Uh, on the one hand, you have the banks with all the knowledge, and on the other hand, you have the so-called borrowers who have no knowledge about what really happened and their lawyers basically have close to no knowledge about what really happened. And so I don't know that they, that the typical pro se litigant or even the lawyer knows what questions to ask. And as, as, as an intro to, as an intro to that, which and then I hand it back to you, um, the questions to ask are largely based on the issue of foundation. Those lawyers who are listening should look that up again because it could be the last time you ever considered it was in law school. The foundation for testimony can be tested if it's, and even objections can be raised if they're raised timely. The, in order for a, a robo witness to get away with testifying uh, that the balance is whatever it is, that XYZ owns the note uh, or whatever, uh, there are se several precedents before that 
that have to be true for that testimony to be true. And if you break any one of the precedents, either in discovery or cross-examination or in objections at trial, then the proper thing to do at trial is not only to object and hopefully have your objection sustained, which I usually get my objection sustained, then move to strike the testimony of the witness regarding the matters that he testified to. One of the errors that I frequently encounter with trial lawyers uh, or people who are trying to be trial lawyers is they get so excited that their objection was sustained that they forget to move to strike the testimony. And so even though they won on the objection, the testimony remains in the record. And that provides a potential basis for an appellate court to say, well, there are things in the record that support that could support the judge when he ruled against or she ruled against the borrower. So with that, let's talk about, or why don't you talk about, the actual questions we should ask, which, although in different form, apply to both discovery um, and court practice, which includes objections, um, motions, and cross-examination. Yeah, I'll get into all of that um, just momentarily. The only preface I think is useful for the listening audience is to emphasize uh, to everyone the importance of discovery in these cases. Again, whether you're on the defendant's side in a judicial foreclosure state or the plaintiff's side in a non-judicial foreclosure state, the reason discovery is such a big deal is we talk all the time about evidentiary hearings, but the way the legal process is set up is you'll get kind of an evidentiary hearing with motions for summary judgment, which can be either brought by the defendant or plaintiff. So, you know, either side can bring a motion for summary judgment into a case. Typically you're not going to see them until later, Um, but those are tough to win. They can expose the evidence of a lack thereof of the opposition. And that's why they're so useful. But short of that, you're rarely going to get a genuine evidentiary hearing outside of trial. So the discovery process is, is really critical and not surprising with all the resources they have and all the deep trial practice that they have. The, the big firms that go up against me in these claims cases that I handle in California they almost invariably do discovery, they almost invariably do depositions, and they almost invariably use that intel and info to put into a motion for summary judgment. So the critical questions uh, that Neil sees as ones you want to frame this type of, of analysis around you know, this is directly related to the RBS situation, but it could also be applied 
to other big bank settlements. The first is you want to look at exposing, in this case, you know, what's ultimately probably going to be the lack of this in many cases, the existence of the trust on paper with all elements of the trust instrument, you know, that's the PSA, pooling and servicing agreement completed. In other words, can you even find the so-called securitized trust properly laid out in such a way that the servicer or, or other foreclosure is connected to that and, and is it connected to it in a way which is bonafide and real. And of course, in the vast majority of these cases, that's not the case. Then you're going to want to look at, and again, the, the typical way that you would, you would ferret out these questions, by the way, is you would do written discovery initially, and that would involve requests for admissions, requests for production of documents, and then requests for special interrogatories, which is the kind of individualized question directed to a specific matter. So the second thing you're going to want to look at is the existence of real-world transactions in which the trust paid or received any money from anyone. And the reason for this, of course, is if the, the entity who is either suing you or you are suing, if they don't have real-world transactions where they can show money went to them or money left from them, then how can they be a legal entity in the real world with legal standing to, to, to claim uh, foreclosure status? In other words, uh, beneficiary status in a non-judicial foreclosure state. Condition here, uh, the existence of a transaction in which the trust paid for residential mortgage-backed loans. In other words, again, you're looking for actual proof that they're actually in the real world tied to a securitized trust. Uh, next, the existence of private or government lawsuits that claim the sale of trust certificates was a sham. And this, of course, is a really big deal. And, and this is the, uh, the theme of our show, show today is how government authorities however belatedly and however limitedly have made some effort at least to go after the big bank on these fraudulent transactions. Uh, number five, a list of settlements with private investors and a list of settlements with government agencies in which the underwriter of the certificates paid a fine. Of course, this is a really big deal because if you can get down to the finer details, such as private investors, if, if they themselves were brought into a loop of this and forced to pay a fine because of one of these government actions, that's something that could potentially be used in an individual lawsuit. I mean, you are going to need a really fine level of detail in, in this analysis. And I know I repeat this all the time. It's just the way it is. To get past the institutional bias, and the years-long-developed skepticism of the judges and even the opposition from the other side, we on our side have to particularize everything to a fine level of detail. Um, number six, 
copies of a lawsuit filed against the underwriter. Again, if, if there are multiple lawsuits against a particular underwriter or a particular securitized trust or series of trusts, that's going to be a really big deal, and it's a potential minefield in the pleadings for getting details against specific defendants and non-judicial foreclosure states and potentially helping defendants and you know, as borrowers in judicial foreclosure states. And then where you find a lawsuit, you will find settlement, at least when you're dealing with large numbers of either. So copies of settlements with the underwriter would be helpful as well. And then finally, number eight, copies of target letters in which the underwriter was told they are a target of investigation for violation of securities laws lending laws or the FTC Act. And again, this is a very big deal because these institutional underwriters, yes, they're big, uh, but there's still a subset in many cases of the big mega banks. So if they're having government authority brought to bear on them, uh, you can see what types of laws and various procedures are are subject to violation by looking at these target letters. And you could incorporate similar causes of action into plaintiff's cases where borrowers are plaintiffs or where you're a defendant, they could potentially help you come up with uh, more creative or effective ways of framing your pleadings in the defense field. I think uh, I think that's a good list. Um, I, I uh, would piggyback. I think you pretty much covered uh, it broad stroke and say that uh, I asked the question, when was the trust created? With what? And that pins them down to the pooling and servicing agreement being the trust instrument. And do you claim to derive your authority uh, to administer this loan, the subject loan, by virtue of the pooling and servicing agreement? And... um, uh, that inc- and that would include the servicer. Do you derive your authority to service the loan by virtue of the pooling and servicing agreement? Very often, incidentally, the answer to that is no. They're they're functioning off of a, an appointment, at uh, at worst or at best, a power of attorney. Uh, sometimes a supposed merger which may or may not have actually occurred, but it was announced. And um, uh, is the the PSA that, uh, uh, well, if it was in court, that you've introduced or if it's in discovery, um, um, that, uh, that you've referred to on sec.gov, um, 
is that trust instrument complete? Uh, did it have the mortgage loan schedule attached? Did it? Uh, is it missing exhibits? Was it signed? I've seen hundreds of cases that have gone through foreclosure based on a pooling and servicing agreement that was never signed. And uh, then the key question that I ask, which is just different verbiage from what you just said, Charles, is when when did the trust pay for the subject loan? And by phrasing it that way, you are at least narrowing the possibilities for them to skate around it uh, with the fact that, you know, they got delivery of the note and all that stuff. We're asking a very key question. Did the, the, uh, did the trust pay for the loan or, uh, and, and if it did, when did it uh, pay for the loan? When did it? So if it didn't <clears throat> pay for the loan, there's only one possible conclusion, which is that the trust is not a creditor. Now, this is where most people slept in law school in uniform commercial code classes. If the trust did not pay for the loan and there's no creditor, then the most that it could be is a party in possession of the note, which it isn't because the servicer got it, um, but a, uh, a person that is entitled to enforce. Well, where do they get that entitlement? They get it because a creditor, the real creditor who owns the debt, gave them the authority to enforce the debt on behalf of that real creditor. So that leads to the question of, okay, if you didn't pay for the note, then who are you representing um, uh, in connection with the enforcement of the note and mortgage? And this is where the, the, the more you drill down and the deeper the questions that you ask, the less the robo-witness is able to answer, and frankly, the less the lawyers who were who filed suit based upon the electronic delivery of a form sheet which told them, you know, who the beneficiary is and um, uh, who the new trustee is going to be in a substitution of trustee or who the plaintiff is going to be in a state like Florida uh, and who the servicer is going to be. Um, the attorneys... Uh, are in are not doing due diligence uh, intentionally, I think, to avoid knowing that the entire claim is a sham. But I think we've gotten to the point where, unless the attorney is a complete imbecile, he knows as soon as he gets a new assignment 
that the claim for foreclosure is fraudulent. So in asking questions, the thinking process, which is what I'm getting to here, my point, the thinking process about what questions to ask is basically to ask yourself, okay, they are saying X. What must be true in order for X to be true? And those are the questions you really ask. And my experience uh, as a litigator has been that's what win, wins cases. They're not in any position to even argue the point because the way this has been set up by the major banks, the mega banks, is there's a half a dozen layers, each with varying degrees of, quote, knowledge, end quote, much of which is uh, pure fabrication. And so the people on at ground level who are filing these foreclosure cases know as little as possible because they have to know as little as possible or else they could be subject to perjury prosecution or subornation of perjury in the case of the uh, lawyer and therefore disciplined by the state bar association um, uh, that could result in the loss of their license. I personally believe we're at the point where it's, it would be difficult uh, for any lawyer that's been doing this for any length of time uh, for the banks uh, for them to claim ignorance over what was really happening. Well, I agree with you on that, Neil. Uh, I think that in, in a perfect world and maybe even in just a better world, the expose that we've done even, even on this show over the years would be enough to, to shake the regulatory tree to be much more um, – kind of bountiful than it's been. I mean, yeah, we've had these, these, these settlements trickle out. I mean, I, w I went over earlier today some of, some of the more dramatic ones from the uh, Department of Justice. And, you know, look, the Department of Justice has had usually mega billion, uh, like the $25 billion settlement they had with the five major mortgage services back in 2012. And then they've targeted individual servicers. I mean, uh, they, they were involved with Chase and some other players related to Chase, but it was mainly Chase. That was a $13 billion settlement from 2013. And Wells Fargo twice. And we're not even talking about, you know, the, the, the fake consumer accounts involving Wells Fargo. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be lots of government regulatory activity on that, and there already have been some settlements. No, this is all strictly their mortgage lending, so-called securitized mortgage lending. Uh, 2016, 2012, uh, $1.2 in the most recent one. And 
Then, of course, you've got Bank of America, which at the time, that was the largest settlement with any individual institutional player. I'm sure that will be supplanted at some point, but that was a few years ago, August 2014, that was $16.65 billion. And one of the things that's notable about all these settlements is, one, you never see criminal charges in any of the settlements. Sometimes the settlements will disclaim uh, criminal charges as being a potential possibility in those, but more typically what they'll do is wink, wink, nod, nod, say, well, we're not reaching the issue of criminal liability. We're not doing a criminal referral here, but that doesn't mean that it, it, it couldn't be done, um, except it would be the Department of Justice who would issue such a criminal referral. So if they're not associating what they're doing with a criminal referral at the time of these cases being settled, uh, you know, from a litigation point of view, it's highly unlikely there's going to be a criminal referral later. And lo and behold, there haven't been any criminal referrals. Uh, you know, there may have been some isolated cases that fell off the radar, but there was certainly never anything major. So this is all just cost of doing business stuff. I mean, something like $16 billion seems like a lot of money, but... I don't know the exact numbers, but I know Bank of America by itself got more than $100 billion under the TARP program. So this is all funny money at that point. And as you were saying, Neil, earlier, you know, we're talking about pennies on the dollar, basically, for them to write this stuff off. And, uh, you know, I think the takeaway for the borrowers uh, listening to the show is that Yes, we can potentially use some of these settlements in our cases, but one always has to keep in mind that the judges in the opposition are going to try to discount any application, and it's going to have to be individually related and individually connected. And the discovery report points that we were talking about earlier, that's the type of thing that, that needs to be worked up and done in these cases. And, uh, you know, if that is done, then, you know, these cases can potentially switch the dynamic where so much of the power and leverage is on the other side, and we can actually get leverage on our side. But it, it is going to take a lot of individual development to make all of that happen. Yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're right about connecting external events to an individual case, of course. But I, I think, you know, if, you're, if you research it enough and you uh, process it enough in your mind, you can do it. Um, if you get to the point where they're, uh, they're unable to answer or unwilling to answer when they paid for the subject loan and if you are fortunate enough to get uh, to the point where uh, uh, it could be at least implied that the trusts were never funded and then assuming the judge allows that 
um, if you bring in uh, a lawsuit as a matter of public record, which alleged essentially uh, what you're saying, which is that the money was diverted into uh, uh, hands other than the trust, um, then the uh, the fact that the money was diverted um, uh, tends to corroborate uh, many of the positions that should be taken by the homeowner, one of which, of course, is that if they're claiming this uh, paper chain or paper trail uh, is the basis of their ability to enforce uh, and the base of the paper trail, uh, uh, that would mean that everything in, in the paper trail, including the base, lacked any monetary transaction which means that the money from the investors was used for other purposes and uh, uh, arguably, therefore, uh, the actual loan was with a commingled pool of investor money uh, that was not in a trust and that the uh, wrong party was named on the note and mortgage, and therefore the uh, everyone claiming thereafter uh, does not have did not acquire any interest in in the loan. Uh, of course, the, you know these things, as you point out, with a caveat, these things have to be carefully strategized. And if it's not working in court. Um, then obviously you need to switch strategies. Uh, trying harder on something that is uh, based on good experience as a litigator, but, uh, if, you, if you're trying something and it's really not working, then uh, you, you switch to plan B and hopefully you've got one. Uh, but I can say... From, from my experience, that these cases are winnable uh, if they're thought out, planned out, and, you know, where the preparation includes, you know, what you're going to say either as a closing argument and what you're going to object to and how you're going to cross-examine. Uh, whoops, we're running out of time. we got 30 seconds. But yeah, like you say, Gail, discovery and trial prep is essential. So I I think that uh, we've, we've covered some issues here. Uh, one of the things that we're working on is developing a service that will uh, provide a list of questions and also uh, uh, ghost draft uh, pleadings and motions and things like that. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you again next week. And thank you, Charles Marshall, once again for joining as co-host.
Absolutely, Neil. I'll, I'll see you next Thanks week. for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.